Well, good morning once again. My name is uh, Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new with us this morning, if you're a first-time guest and you're expecting to hear the lead pastor, my apologies. You're going to have to come back again next week uh, to to do that. Um, (laughs) But uh, Joe and his family are... um, in Colorado, getting a little last-minute last uh, getaway, and so I uh, am, uh, have the privilege of speaking to you guys this morning, and one of the things that we do uh, here at Providence is we walk through books of the Bible, and right now we are in the Old Testament uh, book of First Kings, so if you want to go ahead and flip over there, we're going to be in First Kings uh, chapter 15 and 16 this morning, mostly in chapter 15 uh, this morning. Um, but one of the, what, what's great about walking through books of the Bible is it really kind of forces you to look at things that you may not choose to, to study on your own. So like this morning, if I had a, you know, a choice of, of what to preach, probably 1 Kings 15 and 16 is going to be way down here, probably. probably. Uh, but uh, we know uh, as, we, as we looked at uh, and, and as we went through 2 Timothy last time that all things, all scripture is profitable. But I can tell you that you know, you're probably not going to see any devotional books from Max Licato come out about 1 Kings 15 and 16. You're not going to go to your Christian bookstore and find these verses on a coffee mug or a blanket or any of the things that they, they have in there. But, uh, but we know that all Scripture is profitable. And there is some great uh, truth in this book that I'm excited uh, to talk to you about this morning. Now, if you're new to the Bible... The Bible is full of some very imperfect people, very imperfect people. As a matter of fact, the great philosopher Homer, uh, not, not that Homer, that Homer, <laughs> the great philosopher Homer, when speaking of the Bible, said, everybody in here is a sinner, except for this guy. And this guy is Jesus. This guy, Jesus, is the point of everything in this book, and the point of everything. And so, Homer's right. The majority of the Bible, when you think about it, the majority of the Bible was written by three guys who were murderers, Moses, David, and Paul. And then we get another three books from a guy that we just got finished studying a lot about, Solomon, whose Solomon had a lot of issues, not the least of which was having 700 wives. <laughs> Amen. Whoa. Whoa is a good word. So what we need to understand when we're looking at the Bible is the Bible is full of imperfect people. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering how can God use me, a sinner? How can God use me? This book is full of examples of God using some big sinners to do big things. And so that brings us to 1 Kings 15 and 16. 
And let me tell you, 1 Kings 15 and 16 is full of some bad dudes. There are eight kings that are listed in, um, in these two chapters, two of them in Judah, six of them in Israel. Now again, just a quick synopsis of how we got to where we are. If you're, again, if you're new to the Bible, how, we, how did we get to where we are? God chose a people. He rescued that people from Egypt. He led them into the wilderness or through the wilderness. He takes them to the promised land in the book of Joshua. And after Joshua, he sets up judges. And this doesn't go well. And the king and the, so the people are looking around at other lands and they're seeing all these other king, all these other lands have a king. So we want a king too. And so God gives them Saul, and then God gives them David, and now here we are in the book of First and Second Kings. And First and Second Kings, we have all the post-David kings. And so the first 11 chapters of the book of First Kings is all about Solomon. And then last week, Joe got us into uh, ver- uh, chapters 12 and through 14. And in 12 and 14, we see the kingdom split. And we see two really bad kings. So we have Rehoboam. In Judah, and Judah is in the south, and that's where Jerusalem is. And Jeroboam is in the north, uh, uh, and he is the king of Israel. And so to kind of help you out with this, if you look on the, the notes page, if you got a, a fold-out thing to help you out with this kind of crazy lineup of kings, we put a program in there. You can't tell the players without a program, right? So, so you can see... Uh, this list of kings, both for Israel and, and for Judah. And the lineup is color-coded. Those that are highlighted in a, in a dark green are the good kings. Now, don't get excited because the use of good for these guys, is the, the word good is kind of shaky on, on some of these guys. Um, so don't get too excited about that. But those in the medium shade of green are kind of a mixture of good and bad. They do some things, and then the light shade of green is bad. And so if you look on Israel's side, in chapters 15 and 16, bad. All bad. Nadab, bad. Basha, bad. Elam, bad. Zimri, he's only king for seven days, but he's bad. Omri took over for Zimri after seven days. Bad. Matter of fact, the, as, the, as you read through the descriptions of him, it said and this king was worse than the kings that had come before. They just keep getting worse and worse. Until you get to Ahab, and Ahab is the worst. Now, we'll, we'll get to read a lot more about Ahab in the coming verses. Ahab's wife is Jezebel. And so we'll get, to, we'll get to read a lot more about him and, and Elijah and the, king and, the, and the prophets of Baal. And it's about to get really exciting in uh, the book of uh, 1 Kings. 
So this morning, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the bad kings. Matter of fact, what the time that I just spent is the time that we're going to spend on the bad kings. We're just not going to really talk about them. If you want to go and read chapters, uh, chapter 16, uh, I would, you know, it's interesting reading. You can, you can do that. Second uh, Chronicles is also a good place uh, to read about that, those. We're going to instead kind of look over on the right side of that list that you have there and focus in particular on one guy. Now, the first name on the list, Abijam, uh, the first name on the list for chapters 15 and 16, Abijam, uh, we see him in the first eight verses of 1 Kings uh, 15. In verse 3, we see that uh, he basically walked uh, in all the same sins that his father did. Rehoboam. Abijam is a syncretist like his, his father is. And what a syncretist is, is is someone who kind of melds a bunch of religions together. So that would be like, say, if, if you come here on Sunday morning uh, and, and, and worship with us, and then on Friday night you go to a Muslim mosque and you worship there on Friday night, and then another day of the week maybe you go to a, a Mormon uh, building and you worship with Mormons. And so basically what he's doing is he's kind of hedging his bets, so to speak. Okay, he's kind of saying, you know, one of these things is probably the true one, so I'm just going to worship all of them, and that way I don't have to conform to any of them or, or obey any of them. And, and it's just, Abijam is just more of the same, more idolatry worship. And so this is three kings in a row and things are looking pretty grim. The people are starting to think, is there ever going to be a good king? Is there ever going to be somebody that follows the true God? And remember the promise that the Lord made to David way back in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, And said, in your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we see in verse 4 of chapter 15. Let's read that together. We see in verse 4 of chapter 15. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son, let's talk about Abijah's son, after him, and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life, except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And so not for Abijam's sake, but for David's sake, God gave a lamp in Jerusalem. Now, a lamp in, is a picture of, con, of the continuity of the presence of God. And we see this symbolism all throughout the Old Testament. I kind of like to think of it like the old Motel 6 commercials, right? With Tom Bodette. What does Tom Bodette do? He leaves the light on for you, right? Everybody, that's a great, what a great ad campaign, because everybody knows that. Everybody knows what, what, what you're talking about. 
But that's exactly what what God is doing here. He's, He's saying, I know it's been dark. I know it's been a long time since you've had anybody that followed the Lord. I know it's been a long time since you, since you have seen a good king. And so I'm leaving this light on for you. Donald Wiseman said it this way. This is an example of God blessing the unworthy for the sake of the worthy. And so we see in verse 9, finally, a good king enters. And so we're going to pick up and read there. So if you want to follow along with me, we're going to be in, again, 1 Kings 15, starting in verse 9. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols his father had made. He also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asherah cut down her image and burned it in the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all of his days. And so, I am sure after bad king, after bad king, after bad king, after bad king, these people are wondering, is God ever going to bring us a good king? But in comes Asa. And this king immediately declares war on idolatry. Even on the idolatry of his family, as we see in, in verse 13. Now, Asa must have been pretty young, uh, and Micah was actually his grandmother. And so, what, um, and so um, she was what was called the queen mother, which meant that she was kind of a placeholder as far as the throne goes, kind of a placeholder until he was old enough to take the throne. And so when he does, the first thing that he does is, is removes her idol and removes her and puts her away, it says. And, and the way that the text reads, she probably didn't go quietly. It seems like she, wasn't, she was pretty reticent to go. And so he chopped down her idol and he takes it to uh, the Kidron Valley, which is basically Jerusalem's dump, and he burns the idol there. Asa means business. This stuff has been going on for too long. And so you can imagine there was probably some pushback, right? There was probably business that was related to uh, the prostitution that was going on. There was making of idols. There was all kinds of, of things that was going on, but Asa doesn't. Put, give mind to any of that. He puts all of that away. You can also imagine that there's a group of people who are true worshipers. And they're saying, finally, finally, 
a king who is willing to come in here and knock out all of this idolatry that's going on. Asa is a good example for us. Idolatry ran deep, has deep roots in his family. And so Asa turned away from that, turned away from what his father had done, what his grandmother had done, what his father's father had done. And finally, we have a king who loves the Lord and is willing to do something. Even cut down his grandmother's idol. How many of us are willing to cut things out of our lives that are leading us away from God? Whatever it is, hobbies, politics, devices, vices, pursuit of what the world defines as success, these things are painful. And sometimes it even means cutting people out of our lives. Sometimes it even means cutting family out of our lives. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, does this mean we're not to love our family? Does this mean we're not to love our father and mother? No. Of course, we're to honor our father and mother. We're to love our family. Does this mean we're not to love our kids? No. Of course not. What it means is, is that we're not to put anything, anything above God. Yes, parents, even our kids. Nothing goes in that place. And Asa is a, an example of this to us. Now to really understand Asa, you, you have to look at the book of Second Chronicles, which is a, a companion book. And so we're going to spend just a little bit of time over there. If you want to, you can go ahead and flip over there. But Second Chronicles 14... Uh, is where we're going to start there. Second Chronicles 14.4 says that, that He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their families, and keep the laws and commandments. Now, this 
was Asa putting action to what it was that he said that that he said he believed he's commanding the people look I know that you've been on this road for a long time but it's time to turn away and turn back towards the God of your fathers so in these days as the king went most of the time the people went whatever religion the king was that's what the religion the, the people were and so Asa is is turning this tide. We see that he all, that he practices what he preach, preaches in in Second um, Chronicles fourteen. The Ethiopians came. They came with a million men, three hundred chariots. Asa's army much smaller. Asa's army three hundred is about three hundred thousand. And Asa went out to them to meet them, and he prayed. And listen to what he prayed. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help. Between the mighty and the weak, help us, O Lord our God. We rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude. O God, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And so the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. And the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with them pursued them as far as Gerar. And the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. And the men of Judah carried away very much spoil. This is what the king was supposed to do. This is the way the king was supposed to act. And what a simple prayer that Asa prayed Help us, O Lord. We rely on. On you. A million men. 300 chariots. Against a much smaller army. And Asa prayed. This simple prayer. Help us Lord. We rely on. On you. How many of us is that our first response? To pray. When it feels like the world is against us, when it feels like the weight of the world is, is piling on us, is prayer a first response or a last resort? And for Asa in this, it was a first response because he, he knew that there was no way that his small army could defeat this army. And then not only defeat them, but defeated them. Chased them down. Chasing down Ethiopians. I mean, if you've ever like, seen the marathon run, they're, they're pretty fast, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big thing. 
And so Asa is an example for us in this. And Asa did rely on God for, for most of his life. But he was a good king, not a perfect king. And so we see in verse 15, or back in 1 Kings chapter 15, 16 through 24, that Asa is a good king, but not a perfect king. Asa's reign was 41 years. And during this 41 years, Judah was prosperous. They were victorious in battle. They were a beacon in this area. But the king in Israel, Basha, puts Asa in a bit of a bind. He's at war with Baasha, and things aren't going too well. Now, if you remember, when the tribes split, Israel is about is ten tribes. Judah is like one and a half tribes, and so Baasha had Asa in a little bit of a of a bind here. Um, Baasha comes down and brings uh, troops, they build up Rama. Uh, the problem is, this is the problem is, is, is that Rama is only about five miles away from Jerusalem. So if you, if you have any kind of military background at all, you know it's, it's not a good idea to have the enemy just about a morning stroll away from your capital city. That's not a good place to be. Not only that, but Rama was on a major uh, highway, a major conduit of commerce, and so basically, Basha was strangling supplies to get through, and so now things in Judah are are waning, and so Asa gets scared. Asa gets scared, just like we we do often, and instead of praying the same type of prayer that he prayed to defeat the Ethiopians. He calls on an ally, Syria, to break a covenant and attack them from the north. And then as this is going on, Asa and his men go in and they steal all the supplies. They steal the lumber. They steal the stone. They steal all this stuff. And then they, they build their own fortified uh, city to protect them from the advancing army. Now, militarily, this is brilliant. On the surface, this seems brilliant. It seems like an excellent model of leadership. But Second Chronicles tells us what the problem is here. Second Chronicles 16, starting in verse 7. It says, At, this, at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa the king of Judah and said to him, 
Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? And yet, because you relied on the Lord, He gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward you. You have done foolishly in this. For from now on, you will have wars. And then Asa was angry with the seer and he put him in stocks in prison for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at at the same time. In Asa's fear, he didn't rely on the Lord. He relied on his own strength He relied on his own planning. He relied on what he thought was a a good idea. He relied on the greed of another country. And in this, Asa gives us another lesson. That sometimes what looks like a good way is not God's way. Sometimes what looks like a good way is not God's way. And so at the end of his life, Asa becomes bitter. He becomes diseased in his his feet. And even in that, he doesn't seek the Lord. And Asa gives us an example again that we never outgrow the temptation to sin. We never outgrow the temptation to turn away from God, to turn to our our own strength, our own mind. Asa was a good king. He was not a perfect king. And our strength and our hope is not relying on the good, but relying on the best. The best king. The king that will keep the covenant perfectly. God did keep a lamp in Jerusalem until the ultimate lamp came. And so we have hope now, not in a good king, but in the best king. The king who lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved so that we may have eternal life. 
The king that exchanged our sin for his righteousness. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. The king that all of, this, of these other kings are a foreshadow of. All of these other kings point to. Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is what we offer. And so we are going to move now into the king's table. The Lord's table. If our deacons would come.